Soulmate teachers embed emotional literacy with diversity, equity, and inclusion learning. Today on the show, I speak with the award-winning educator, consultant, and writer, Shaquille Chaudhry. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. My first encounter with Shaquille was at the 2017 People of Color Conference. I think my friend Gene Humphreys had told me, oh, he's worth seeing. And let me tell you, he did not disappoint. I read his book, Deep Diversity, then listened to the audiobook, then marched into the office of our school's then head of human resources and declared emphatically that everyone in our school should read this book. I'm not saying I'm the reason the book was put on our staff summer reading. I'm saying that Shaquille's work is so transformative that once you read it, you want everyone to read it. Shaquille's book is a practical, scientific, and compassionate approach to tackling systemic racial discrimination. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground in just 50-ish minutes. We talk about burnout, self-care, how to build justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion work into schools, what Harvard is doing that all our independent schools can learn from, call-out culture, the shadow side of anti-racism work, and how to not get cynical. It's a lot. It's important. It's beyond critical. And it was a huge honor to get to connect with Shaquille in real time. If after listening to the show, you are hungry for more, I urge you to book off January 21st and 22nd for their free online conference, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Times. I'll give you more details at the end of the show. Let's get started with Shaquille Chaudhry. Shaquille Chaudhry, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, Let's just start by having you introduce yourself. Can you tell everyone who you are, where you're from, and what you do? My name is Shaquille Chaudhry. I am the author of Deep Diversity, Overcoming Us Versus Them. And uh, I'm also the co-founder of Anima Leadership, which is a training and consulting company that's based here in Toronto. I have been uh, obsessed with you for a while. I have about a million questions and, you know, not that much time to go through them. So I just want to start by saying um, I found you at the People of Color Conference. Um, I don't even know what year it was, but it was back when it was in Anaheim. And mm-hmm. I have read your book many times over, Deep Diversity, and it is such a good book. It is so fantastic. Um, I've given it to many people. Uh, it is a perfect way to make concepts about systemic racism, about diversity, equity, inclusion, accessible, um, and you're Canadian, which is also a perfect reason for people to read it in our school system, because it takes these things that I think many people think are not a problem here in Canada, and you give really clear examples of what is going on in our country, in our context. Um, I guess I just want to start by saying thank you for writing such a great book. Um, It is a wonderful resource for educators. But I want to start actually with a question about what's going on for you right now, because there has been a lot happening in the past year. You're a parent, you work in the field of diversity, equity, inclusion. You're also clearly a deeply empathetic human. So how are you in this time of this pandemic? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Celeste, for having me on. And I'm so glad that you found uh, the book useful. And uh, I appreciate that you also sharing that um, and you've shared that. So how am I doing? Well, it depends on what day it is, what week it is, what month we've been through. You know, in the political landscape, I have been and continue to be very, very uh, worried uh, about the impacts not just uh, on folks of color, indigenous peoples in this context of COVID, in this context of post-George Floyd. I've also been just really terrified in many ways around the context of Donald Trump rising authoritarianism, not just in, um, in, uh, in the US, but all around the globe, especially in Western democracies. And, and so I've been, I've been quite concerned and, and at times angry and upset and at times hopeful and empowered um, when I see what's happening on the street. 
so I, I, I waver and um, when I can be grounded, I see that we are at a moment of great opportunity because change happens when everyone is off balance. And right now, the status quo has just been shaken. Uh, George Floyd uh, was a inflection point uh, on issues of race and identity. The pandemic has been a major shift point in how we do everything in society. And um, the era of uh, Donald Trump and the extreme polarization has, has just exposed how fragile democracy is. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel like all of these things um, are intersecting. And so um, as, as, uh, as a dear friend of mine, um, uh, Imam Timothy uh, Ignati um, uh, says, it's in the darkest times that the most luminous souls also arise. And so I think about this as, as, as that in this moment, if we can, if we can keep our heads up, we can also address this moment and potentially shift it. And there's so many moments of also incredible hope. I mean, you know, there's so many moments of hope also in this time period, like for example, you know, universal basic income, is now a lived reality for many people um, uh, in in many nations and especially in the context of Canada. Like that's no longer a pilot project that someone can talk about. It's like a lived reality. Um, And and that is being talked about seriously that uh, um, the tragedy around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and in the context of, of, um, uh, of, all these conversations have, have brought something that was a total fringe, fringe movement within, um, within racial justice, the idea of, of defunding the police. That is now a mainstream conversation. That was hardly being talked about even in racial justice circles mm-hmm. with any sense of like real seriousness. So, so I guess what I wanna say is that change is unpredictable. And, um, and if we can keep our heads up and be on top of the wave, um, we can also help orchestrate some of that change in in really positive, empowering, equitable ways. So I guess that's it's a long check-in, but that's a little bit how I'm doing. I, I mean, there's so much that I love about how you're saying that and how you're answering it, because there is a clear sense of optimism in your response. And I sometimes feel like when I'm reading texts about anti-racism or about issues they can be really hard to process and to read. And in your words, and I felt this when I was reading your book, there is a sense of things are hard and we're getting better. Things are hard and we can, we can evolve. We can grow from this. I was really touched actually in the part of your book where you write about how you burned out and you were, you called yourself more of an anti-racist educator and you shifted away from that. And there had been some moments where you had written very honestly about how you had burned out. And I think that that is very understandable given the work that you were doing. Did you, did you have to teach yourself that optimism and that way of seeing hope in those situations in order to avoid burnout? Is that a self-trained skill on your end? Oh God, no. I don't know how, I don't know how people would, I mean, Okay, people who can just self-train themselves into that are just, those are like exceptional, exceptional people. I think, I mean, I had help. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was in, I was in therapy. I was getting supports wherever I could get them, whether it was through friends and mentors and guidance. And it was a many year process. And um, ministries around mental health are not something that just go away. Um, there, there are things that, that we need, like it, it, we have to get away from this idea of, of somehow, you know, when we burn out, it's an individual act. Mm. Uh, we burn out in a context of a social system, uh, mental health stuff, um, comes in a social context. Right. And so I guess I, I just want to say, and healing and health also comes through a community context and a community response. And, and I just think that um, 
that I mean, I learned about it through, through just through others. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would just be false and inaccurate if, if it made it sound, if I, if I ever even suggested that it was something I did on my own. It's never, but I guess I want to just say that, that I, I, I learn, I learn, I've learned all these elements through other people. Um, and I, and I feel incredible amount of gratitude that the things that I, I found mo- find most valuable in my life are my relationships. And those are the things that I've cultivated intentionally. And I feel like in the hardest times, it's the relationships that pulled me out, my activist friends, my personal friends, you know, family, uh, so all and, and professional supports as well. So I just want to put all that to say that that's what's helped me get to the other side. Um, now, I've got more skills today than I did before. And, and, and that helps me remain optimistic, but it's not about optimism for optimism's sake. I think it's about, um, I think the idea is here is that it's okay to be raging and angry and upset. And it's okay to, to experience guilt and shame and all the different feelings that we have, but can we do it consciously? And if we've got the right training and tools and the right community and cultural context around us, we can also make active choices on that um, to just be in a state of needing support and to be in a state of being vulnerable uh, and tired mm-hmm. because that then allows us, could we consciously make that choice? I'm just damn tired. I'm like, I can't do anymore. I'm not going to do anymore. And I'm going to pause and I'm going to look after my kids and I'm going to spend some time with good friends and I'm going to whatever, 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 those kind of things that help us then it allows us to be both miserable and to then also consciously step into joy. Okay, now I've got to get back into being in a place of um, seeing the world also for its beauty and, and find meaning and find meaning in the small things as well as the large things. So I feel like that is a taught skill. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've also learned from others, but that's something that I'm now trying to communicate to others is that make the conscious choice of being still, of, of healing, of needing to pause, whether it's for an hour, a day, a month, a year, a decade, whatever it might be that you need, and then come back out, but make these as conscious choices. And when you make them a conscious choices, then I feel like there's something we can do about them. Yeah, a lot of the people listening to the podcast are teachers. And in this pandemic, I think that it's a double whammy for many educators. Like pre-pandemic, I found as a teacher that burnout was rampant and now layer the pandemic on top of it for educators, it's really challenging. And then on top of that, the educators who are actually doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, it's like this layer on top of layer on top of layer. You were a teacher once and you had been in the classroom. Any like just like practical ideas or advice for teachers in a pandemic who are struggling doing DEI work that are maybe prone to burnout any sage words of wisdom that you can give those folks it sounds really basic but um the pandemic will be over there will be another side to this some teachers burn out because they love teaching and they just they a friend of mine is just like an exceptionally good kindergarten teacher and he's like, I just can't teach badly. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do that. And so as a result, it's like he's gone back to first year teaching again, that kind of intensity. And, and it's like, that's right. And at the same time, um, you know, this is not going to be over till maybe next fall, or at least on the other side of something that feels a bit more clear till next fall. So it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be not as good as you would like yourself to be. Um, so that's that's just like the first is give yourself permission. The second thing is um, at a really really basic level, kids whether they're online or whether they and especially if they're online, um, especially if they're really marginalized, on some level, um, need connection, need need you <laughs> like will learn, the kids will learn the math. They will learn English. They will learn all these things. What we need right now is, is self-regulation, but self-regulation, not as an isolated act, self-regulation and the Stuart Shankar approach, which is like understanding the context. And so 
You know, if right now the basics things that you are doing is giving kids um, a basic connection and building a connection to their personal lives, then that's a lot, right? And that's also part of like culturally responsive pedagogy, right? Is like, you've got to build a connection to the student. How, do you understand their families? Can you get them to talk about what the pandemic is like? Can you get, like even that in itself is, is the baby steps of equity work is, is just getting people to start recognizing that they, um, that you build a connection to the student, you learn about them, you get them to feel good about who they are about in their diversity in their identities, that even those things are huge things. And that's sustained so that when you're tired and you're looking at the curriculum, frankly, screw the curriculum right now, let it go. We're in survival mode, triage, triage and keep your eyes on the relationships. Mm -hmm. um, triage and keep your eyes on yourself and your family and do the things that are, are gonna support you. Are you drinking enough water each day? <laughs> you know, like, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know are, are you getting enough food? Um, are you at least trying to get off of your chair? This is my struggle, it's like getting out of this chair, like being on Zoom mm -hmm. um, and for teachers that may be teaching remotely, like you might not be getting out of your chair, build that in, you know, um, model it uh, for your students and for yourself and for your families and go gently. I mean, I feel like mm. the curriculum will come because we'll be on the other side of this, but the relationships are most important. And if you can focus on the relationship with yourself, people in your life, and then also on, on the students around you, you know, you focus in on them and their families and what's happening for them, that's, that's culturally responsive pedagogy, right? Mm. Or at least the basics of it. So I would, I, would say, I would say starting there is the basics of equity. Right. And then yeah. build up from there as you've got more energy to do that. Cause this is just damn hard. Yeah. Go easy on yourself is would be my first advice. I love that. I literally am going to play back that sound clip to myself every morning before I start school. That is really helpful. And you're right. It's very simple, but sometimes it's the simplest ideas that are the most profound, like just drinking water and sleeping can probably get us through a lot in the next couple of weeks. I want to touch on um, independent schools for a little bit because I work in an independent school. Many of the people listening today work in independent schools. And by our very nature, we are exclusive institutions. It costs a lot of money to go to an independent school. There is an application process and sometimes there's testing to get in. Um, and some, this is the interesting part, some parents are intentionally choosing to send their child to a school like that because of that exclusiveness. And on the flip side of it, because an independent school has the ability to choose and recruit and attract different students and teachers to our schools, unlike any other institutions, we have this like amazing possibility to become truly inclusive places. Like we know that public schools are more relegated to whoever lives in that postal code. So I wanna ask you, uh, based on all those kinds of conditions set up in these environments, how might independent schools work with parents as key stakeholders when the school is moving towards more inclusion and parents may not be completely on board with that shift? Well, <laughs> I, I don't think that there is a simple answer to that. And I am by no means an expert on the context of, of um, private schools. Um, what I would suggest though is that First of all, it's about leadership. So it's really a decision um, at the, at the top, at top levels of leadership, either have to make a decision themselves or be influenced to make decisions themselves, right? So um, one of the things that I heard you say is that um, you know, a big push comes from students. Mm -hmm. The fact that you, 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 know, you started taking um, students of the People of Color Conference in, in, the, in the U.S., which is amazing. Um, I, I love that conference. It's unlike any other place I've ever been in. Um, and um, and that, that in itself creates a grassroots push. So I feel like, you know, if you're looking at strategies, it's really about grassroots strategies. It's about how do you mobilize um, the, the need? How do you mobilize... Um, uh, and make more people aware, and then it, and and the, and you and you kind of have to lobby the the leadership, right? 
Um, so, you know, I wouldn't really think about the loudest parents, you know, I'm, I would think about um, how do you get teachers on board and how do you get other students on board and how do you get, and then, cause I feel like jumping ahead to how do we make the whole school inclusive economically is probably the last question that needs to be answered. The first questions might be, how do we just get, how do we embed diversity, equity, and inclusion period, mm-hmm. right? How do we normalize conversations around race and identity in our curriculum? How do you, how do you um, treat the, um, the number of, uh, the likely lower number of black and indigenous students in your schools? How do you treat them well knowing that there's all these systemic forces going against them both inside and outside school. How do you create the environment where your where your where your where your um, students, your staff, and your leadership are all on board with the basic principles of that? Um, and then and then I think inevitably the next question comes. Well, you know, we're all this is still pretty. We have some scholarships here and that kind of thing, but. Could we do more? Could we do better? I feel like that there's sort of like a, so jumping to the immediate thing um, may shut down the whole diversity, equity, inclusion project before it begins in some places. So maybe that's not the first place to be more strategic, but maybe it is the first place because I don't know the school context everybody's in. Maybe there's enough leaders that are already on board that are ready to do that. They just need, you know, more parents, students and staff um, behind them. So you have to kind of suss it out. And I always believe that you've got to do this work together. So find other people and what are they saying and how are you doing it inside the school? Um, are there examples of schools that have done it differently in other places, right? And what does the school want to be? Not three to five years from now, but 20 to 30 years from now, when we know that um, the population demographics um, will radically be shifted. Right, and on all nations, uh, all all, all um, uh, European-based nations, Canada, the U.S., you know, all these kind of places. The we know that that uh, baby boomers are retiring. We know that there's low birth rates, um, and we also know that um, you know to keep the economy going, the answer is going to be um, one immigration and two reaching out to um, um, marginalized communities already, indigenous communities. Um, uh, racialized communities, that's going to be their workforce. So where do you want to be 20 to 30 years from now? So it's sort of, it's sort of doing that kind of visioning forward, right? And, um, and sometimes doing an exercise that's known as a um, pre-mortem can help versus a post-mortem. And so it's like our school is on the verge of, of closing its doors and the year is 20 years from now or 30 years from now. How did we get here mm. and what could we have done to prevent it? Like, so there's these exercises that leadership teams and communities could do to start thinking about where we wanna go. And the other thing is too, I, I sort of take a page out of um, a story I heard about um, Harvard University by Mazarin Banaji, who's the, um, uh, one of the geniuses, uh, she coined the term implicit bias mm. and she's the, um, one of the co-founders of the implicit association test that is like made implicit bias, so such a common um, um, mainstream term now. So um, she tells a great story. She's like, you know, I know what genius looks like um, because I'm at Harvard and I've been at Harvard and I've been in these Ivy League schools and genius is a man of a particular age and of a, you know, and, you know, and dresses a particular way and his hair is, you know, this kind of stuff. And she said, and of course, I also know that that image, if that's all I see as genius, then um, I'm going to miss the genius that comes in the in the 20 year old um, uh, female student that ends all her sentences in a question mark. And and she said, so you know, at Harvard, what what we do, what we've done is that there is a scholarship fund. And she said, um, and the numbers at Harvard are kind of staggering when she shared this. Um, and folks can go online to confirm this. But it's it's like ridiculous numbers. So don't. But it's something like something like fifty percent of all students are like on a scholarship which covers everything to you know like eighty percent or something like that. Like it's mammoth amounts of scholarships, and that and that um, 
uh, and then that there's another 20 or 30 percent that are also on significant scholarships. So she says, you know, basically 80 percent of our school is in some way, shape, or on, on scholarships. And she goes, and do you know why we're doing that? Not because we're trying to be nice, but because we want to remain one of the top universities on the planet. And we know that requires more and more geniuses being in here and genius lies in every community. And so our job, she said, that's a fund that never gets touched. Every other funds can, every other part of the, of the building of the, of, the, of the structure of Harvard can get like cutbacks, but that fund will stay intact because, um, because we want to remain the top university. So there's a way that Harvard has thought about this that says like, this is what we want to be. We want to remain one of the top universities on the planet. We want to be one of the centers of thinking. And so they created a vision for themselves and then they went after it and created funding around it. So there's a way that, you know, um, depending on what the private school wants to be a few decades from now, the diversity conversation may mean something different and activate some other ways of thinking if, if they start envisioning uh, a different kind of future. Yeah, that is really powerful to think about. And something that I've even noticed, and we talked about this before I hit the record button, is that the way that the students are engaging with the work at the schools has really changed. And I'm sure you found that even in your own work and learning and having young people in the world. I found that as soon as students started going to the People of Color Conference, even before that, but I, I feel like there was really a tipping point when students started engaging with some of these ideas when they came back to our school it felt like there were sparks flying in the best way possible. So when the students like that grassroots energy, then those students go home and talk to their parents, then the parents who are part of the school, you know, there's more conversations happen. And I think that it starts small. And as soon as it, as soon as the students are engaging with it in a meaningful way, then I feel like things start moving and things start growing. I want to pick your brain about call-out culture because in the midst of all the things happening over the last year, we've noticed a lot has happened in terms of what's going on in social media. Call-out culture is one side of it. Cancel culture is another side of it. I just saw a New York Times article um, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The title is a racial slur, a viral video and a reckoning. And basically a white high school student, her acceptance to university gets withdrawn after a three second video where she says a racial slur and one of her classmates had posted it publicly. And so the article kind of talks about what that was about. What are your thoughts on call out culture right now? I'm sure that you have been doing a lot of thinking about this because it's been bubbling around, but I would love to pick your brain on what you see is happening. So, you know, call out culture and cancel culture, for me, it's the online version of a, um, of a protest, of a boycott, right? And, and those are really important. Um, those are important things because usually it's like a corporation uh, it's um, an institution in society like policing. It's a hospital. And, and, and generally, when a protest happens, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's you know, you know, unfair um, workplace uh, tactics that are being challenged, whatever it might be that's happening, it's usually an institution that is being shamed. And shame is an important um, an important weapon to make change happen. I mean, that's part of, that's the, that's in the tradition of nonviolent, um, nonviolent protests, right? Um, that's in the tradition of Dr. King and the civil rights movement of Gandhi of just like, it's like, we are not gonna stand up. We're not gonna let uh, unjust things happen. We're not gonna wait for other people or other institutions to show up because guess what? You, you're late to the show. So there's a whole thing of why it's really important to call out institutions and to shame them and blame them because they're institutions. The challenge is it's being used at the individual level. And so that part of it, I have real struggles with. And I think that part of it, it's a, again, everything's a gray zone. I don't want to you know, paint everything as the same brush. But on the extreme edge of call-out culture, it's toxic, right? It's, um, it's revenge stuff that's happening. It's, uh, it's things that are really about, um, um, 
It's about people who are wounded, reacting. It's, it's about any number of things that are going on. Um, and as a result, the, the reaction is, is um, the reaction is disproportionate. And to me, I'm much more of the school that says call in culture and call in culture, um, you know, as, um, as defined by an African-American activist and elder and one of the people who's responsible for, you know, who's a, one of the co-originators of the, of the um, reproductive justice movement in the US, Loretta Ross. And Professor Ross, um, she, she talks about call-in culture and I really like the way she talks mm -hmm. about it. And because and, and, you see, call-in culture is, is about, is identifying what's going wrong but doing it in a way that allows for learning to happen. It's a restorative process. Um, and it's one that allows for the opportunity to make mistakes. And we make mistakes, um, but every, if every mistake is treated with like a 300 pound anvil falling on somebody, well, then we've lost the ability to discern um, if every comment, if every misstep is worthy of that, then we're not creating, we're creating a more self-righteous environment. We're creating a more brittle environment. We're not creating a more resilient environment. And um, so I, I, I like to think about things in the context of, of um, Dr. King's work where, you know, he was about persuasion is also about using direct action, but using it in a way that also allowed people to, to be in some kind of uh, process that is also, um, that allows reconciliation to happen, right? And, um, and so for me, that's, that's really important in his work. And so I think it's actually easier to be reactive. I think it's harder to be restorative and i think that we and the ability to know when to call someone full frontal racist to their face versus hey i heard what you said or did um you know and, and i need to share with you the impact on me and other people um you know the difference between that um because there's places to say to call to to, to call someone racist. There's places to be in someone's face. There's places to be, I just want to be really good. There's places to rage and, and to be, and to, and to just really be activated. And then there's also places, but the, um, there's places to, um, to not do those things. The ability to, to, to work in that is discernment, right? How do you discern? Discernment's a concept from trauma therapy um, mm. that, that's about saying, okay, um, how do you figure out the differences? And the field of racism and anti-oppression is a traumatized field. It's about mm -hmm. trauma. I mean, racism is traumatic, right? And as a result, everyone gets, um, everyone, and it's, um, whenever I'm talking about everyone, I'm, I recognize that, that, uh, that in the field, in, in, in this work around justice, um, it's really hard not to get pulled into, into being polarized. Um, uh, uh, and yet we have to be able to distill down when to be in someone's face, when not to be. And that's relational, that's restorative, mm -hmm. and that requires the ability to discern um, when there's a threat and when there's not. And, and sometimes in, in trauma, what we lose is the ability to discern and yeah. um, the ability, to, and everything looks unsafe. And when everything looks unsafe, then we actually can't tell the difference. And so this is why I'm opposed to this idea that everything is racism. If everything's racism, then nothing is racism. If everything is anti-Semitism, then nothing is anti-Semitism, right? If everything's a priority, then nothing is a priority. So we have to be able to distill. And that requires um, a different use of power and working with power. Yeah, and I think I'm really glad that you mentioned trauma because I think that that is hitting the nail on the head. I think a lot of the people who are using these tools um, are coming from places of really hard experiences and 
a lifetime of microaggressions and a lifetime of hurt. And it is really, it is really hard to discern. And I think that learning has to happen. Everyone, everyone's getting better at this work, I think. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I feel like over the last, uh, like I would say like 10 years, there's been a really huge shift culturally in how we're all engaging and thinking about this. So I, I hope, I'm hopeful that perhaps this will be something else that evolves and changes as we get better as a group of people. I do too. I'd like to make one distinction though. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting that everyone who suffered trauma is actually the ones that are um, being most activated. But what mm-hmm. I am saying is that the whole field that we work in is traumatized. So as a result, we will absorb some of that trauma in some way, shape or form, whether we've experienced it or not. What I would call out though, is how we are being trained in anti-racism and um, anti-oppression work. Fundamentally, we're following theories, theories that have been developed by academics. And I actually think that some of the responsibility of, of the dysfunctions are actually coming from the way that anti-racism, anti-oppression is being taught. Mm. And it, it is without compassion. And, um, uh, and as a result, it's extremely academic. It's extremely, the shadow side of anti-racism, anti-oppression, there's many shadow sides, but uh, here's a couple of them. One is the shadow side of um, ARAO work is that it's actually extremely elitist. It doesn't get named that way, but it is. The language is indecipherable if you haven't been to university. Um, And now, of course, uh, there's always a link between grassroots activism, social change, and rightfully so, and academia. And so I'm not disparaging that because I I, I use the work of academics. I use the work. I am an activist. Um, I've been one in in different forms for like 25 years. But what I also want to say is that the shadow side is there's an elitism. Capitalism, hierarchy, all these different things um, patri- patriarchy gets all sucked into the way we do things. Look at how people talk to each other. People talk down to each other. It's like, it, there's always this game of who's got the biggest political club, right? And to me, that's not useful. And not only is it not useful, but it's actually, it feeds a particular way of being in the world. So, the, so one of the shadows is elitism is actually built into how our work is done. And self-righteousness is part of that, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen um, that. And, and um, there's, a, there's a certain kind of self-reflection, but only self-reflection that falls within very particular norms of like the ways that um, identity has been constructed around oppression, which is, okay, I understand that, but it becomes the exclusive lens. Um, the second shadow is that the way that we teach the work right now the other shadow side is disempowerment is a big part of our work like of course we need to see the problems but again this is what i mean is like the academia has turned it into like analysis paralysis there's so much that all people really know how to do is to be is like people confuse critical thinking which should be lauded but like people don't know the difference between critical thinking becomes cynical thinking Mm -hmm right and and the cynicism is part of the problem and so and so this kind of like cynicism and marginality is actually being taught so i do not at all want to put the aspect of the traumatized field onto traumatized people themselves people have actually gone through and and carry the wounds of racism and and heterosexism and homophobia and carry the wounds of all these i don't want to i'm not at all suggesting but i will sure the hell put some responsibility on how we are being led Mm. and how we are being led is through academia there's not like one person but there's there's like groupthink groupthink happens in every field and we are experiencing groupthink and, and, and this kind of groupthink makes it very hard to talk about other approaches. And it's like the only two, the only two emotions, like we're also really 
we talk about emotions and harm and things like that, but really it's, 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 a, it's a field that's also very disconnected from emotional literacy. So as a result, we've only got two emotions anyone can ever, ever have, anger and rage if you're marginalized and shame and guilt if, you're, uh, if you come from a dominant group, whether you're male or white or whatever it might be. And that's it. And it's like, no, there's way more literacy we need than those two emotions. Um, and so understanding trauma, understanding these pieces and trauma is some of my background and training as well, and is, is to actually come at this in a different way. And that like, I think is, passion. that's why I loved your book so much is that you, you name this in your book really clearly why you moved away from doing anti-racist work and the framework that you've created with the deep diversity framework really allows people to uh, like it, it's infused with compassion. It's infused with a sensitivity and awareness and mindfulness, and it takes it away from a place where there is oppression within the system, and it actually allows people a sense of transcending that, which is why I loved your writing. Like I could listen to you talk all day. Like I want you to cancel everything you're doing in your afternoon and just listen to you talk about this. So thank you. Um, can, can I say, can I say one more thing? Say a million more things. Yes, please. I want to say one more thing, which is, which is that the question is, where are we going? What is our vision? What is our vision of, look for the number of times or the few times anyone's actually talking in our oppression work, work around where we're going. Well, if all we're doing is fighting racism, and fighting sexism and fighting oppression, if that's all our vision is just to fight it, then we don't know where we're actually going and we don't know if we've actually gotten there. And why I say that is that history has shown us and current day realities have shown us where we end up when all we are doing is fighting something, okay? So my people, I come from the context of South Asia. My parents were both born in India before partition. Well, guess what? We got rid of white people. We got, we kicked out the British. Go team go. Yet, today, 70 some odd, I don't know, years later, um, Hindu nationalism is alive and well. Okay? So those who were once oppressed are now oppressing others. Mm-hmm. Um, these examples are everywhere. Um, take a look at Israel. Um, take a look at Quebec, right? Um, and without, you know, um, uh, going into easy anti-Semitism um, or into anti-Francophone sentiments, the very basic question is this, are these communities in which people were marginalized, are these communities in which it is more safe for marginalized communities themselves? And you'll see that generally that is not the answer, right? And so if we're not careful, the oppressed become the oppressor. And on a really micro level, I was working in Philadelphia. Uh, I I I was working with the transit system there. And I came across a report which was looking at Philly's neighborhood. And they did an analysis there. And and the analysis is that uh, white gay men have created a community in which people identify as lesbian, transgender, folks of color, all feel incredible amounts of exclusion, racism. And and this isn't, I'm using Philadelphia as an example because I actually know there's a report there, but you'll see that um, the same pattern plays out. Over and over, like so many different places, yeah. Right? So all that to say that just because we were oppressed does not mean once we fight and create our space, that we're going to be any better. Mm. Often it's just a new brand of oppression. And so for me, what I'm saying is, where are we going? What's our vision? Because if we're not clear about where targets are and what we want to create, then we will just inevitably default, which is some other form of identity-based dominance and non-dominance. Yeah. And so that's, that's what's really important to me, why I think compassion is there. Compassion keeps us humble. Compassion keeps us recognizing that we could be there. We could be that person. I see myself in that person. I see myself in that language. I see myself as making those mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and so that's important. And, and 
And it also then is empowering for people who are on the, on, on the end of the, the scale of like dominant groups that don't know, because it'd be like, right, I don't know and I have to learn. I don't know and I have to stop making bad choices. I have to know, I don't know, but I feel empowered. I didn't make all those mistakes. I didn't create these problems, but, but I have responsibility to, to, to fix them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if all of us could feel a bit more empowered that's important. So, and so going back to the beginning, I said, but it's also important to know when we need to rest. Is that a conscious choice? I also said, and can we also know when we're, we, we, it's not our time to fight. It's not our time to push back. Can we know when it's time to, to be consciously raging because I just need to be consciously raging. That's okay too. But then when I go back into the world and I do my work, um, can I show back up with, the sense of like, I have a vision of where we're going and I have a vision um, where there's a world in which everyone feels like they matter and belong. And we've worked through oppression, but we've created um, uh, uh, something, a new world uh, in which reconciliation um, in the largest sense of the word has been, has been created where, where we can be our full selves, um, where we've used restorative practices to get us there, not punitive practices. Right. So, so um, yeah, so, so, so many things, so many things to say, but that's, that's where, uh, you know, again, I've been recently reading Dr. King and he summed it up and he said, you know, can we fight for first class citizenship, but not using second class methods? I, I want to listen to you talk all day. I'm conscious of your time and I'm conscious that you have other things to do, but where can people find you? How can people learn more about you? Um, and what are you currently working on? Great. Um, so the organization that I, uh, I've co-founded is animaleadership.com. So that's uh, A-N-I-M-A leadership.com. So that's where you can find all our details. A link to it um, in the show notes for people. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, two big projects. Um, I am working on a revised edition of Deep Diversity. Uh, which will be coming out, fingers crossed, this uh, fall of, uh, of 21. That's very That's exciting. Year. Are you going to do an audio book for it as well? I suspect there will be. Yeah, I, I suspect I, there will. Just for anyone listening, your audio book for Deep Diversity is fantastic because you're reading it. So if you are listening to this podcast, and you're like, I like this man. Listen to the audio book. It is fantastic. <laughs> right, right. On that note, unfortunately, no English versions of anything are available right now because um, I've just switched publishers and, um, and so, but if you read French and German, those <laughs> versions are around, um, but anyways, the next version is coming out. Uh, the second thing is, is that um, uh, we are hosting a free online conference called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Times, Leadership to Deepen Democracy. And this is really um, uh, uh, an opportunity January 21st, 22nd, following the U.S. inauguration, where we're gathering people because we are at exceptional times right now. This is civil rights era 2.0. Um, and, uh, and so uh, we want people to recognize that all the civil rights heroes that we admire, they're just ordinary people. Just the times are quite extraordinary. And so we all have a role to play. So come and join us for that conference. It's free, it's online, come for the full two days, come for part of it. We've got amazing speakers such as uh, Loretta Ross will be speaking there. Judy Rebick will be speaking there. Um, we have um, uh, indigenous writers, Alicia Elliott, uh, Wab Rice will be there. And our headliner is, who will be speaking on the first day is Rhonda McGee, the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice. And she's also amazing. So all of our people uh, that are coming are gonna be fantastic. And on top of that, we're gonna be talking about a new paradigm, a new way of approaching racial justice, mm. which we are currently entitled, the working title is, Slow is Fast. Nice, I'm very excited. I'm gonna spread as much word as I can to get as many people involved as that. It sounds like a really important, remarkable event. We close each of these shows with a ticket out the door, which is just a way for people to get to know you as a person, not just as a thinker and as a worker. Um, Are you ready for our rapid fire questions? Ready to go. What is your favorite book to read to your children? Harry Potter. 
could go into so many questions with you about Harry Potter right now. We will leave it for another episode. What is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? Oh, if, um, a very lovely homemade meal for uh, myself and my colleagues. Mm -hmm. What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, usually find some way to cuddle my kids. What is the last thing you do before you go to bed? Breathe this sigh of relief that my kids are asleep. <laughs> what was the last TV show you binged and loved? Oh, The Umbrella Academy. Nice. Very nice. Pie or cake? Cake. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Tacos or nachos? Nachos. Spring or fall? Fall. What would be your last meal on earth? Anything made by my mom. <laughs> you are having a dinner party and you can invite five people dead or alive and it is post pandemic. So people can actually be in the same room at the same time. Who would you invite? Um, Barack and Michelle Obama, Dr. King, Maya Angelou, Mahatma Gandhi, mm. um, Nelson Mandela. I think that's probably more than five. <laughs> it's great. I want to cater that event and just sort of like come in and give you hors d'oeuvres <laughs> so I can hang out. <laughs> yeah. uh, the last question that we ask people, um, and this is a, you know, complex one. So enter it however you want. What is the future of learning? The future of learning is going back to relationships and integrating social emotional intelligence with equity so that we can all so we can all learn to embody our principles and not just talk the talk but also walk the walk. <sighs> You're a gift to the world. Thank you so much for sharing your brain with us today. I am really grateful for how you are showing up for teachers and people, and I'm really happy that I got to chat with you today. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Celeste. Take care. I am so, so, so grateful for Shaquille coming on and speaking on the podcast. I always write up my favorite quotes from the show when I'm editing the episode, and I'm most struck by Shaquille's statement, this is civil rights era 2.0. All the civil rights heroes we admire are just ordinary people. These are indeed extraordinary times. And we as teachers have tremendous power to turn the dial to create the kind of society where everyone belongs and can thrive. Everyone. So sign up for the Ordinary People Extraordinary Times Conference, even just for an event or two. I'll be signing up and sliding into some of the events throughout my teaching day. If you've got something from this episode, share it with a friend, leave a review in Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, and of course, follow Teaching Tomorrow on Instagram and Twitter. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep practicing compassion. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.